We ready? Good evening and a good Chodesh, everyone. Let it should be a very special, wonderful month. Um, we try to have a uh, the class uh, dedicated every time. It's always a good thing to give tzedakah. And um, so if anybody, this class is still available for dedication. If you have any yard site or birthday, or rather birthday or yard site, start with birthdays and good things. If anybody's interested in doing that, that's um, a, good, a good thing to do. So if anybody wants that, you can tell us after this year. We can ded dedicate it in a retroactive or actually before. Okay. Now, this week's... Um, so we are holding today at the round four in You Versus Yourself. So we had learned already in the previous classes that the human being is made up from a dual personality. We have two souls, and they come from two different realms. We have a dark soul, a dark consciousness, where the base feeling of that soul is self. It's a, it's a soul that it's, its core sense of the reality, that all existence evolves around me. I am, I am absolute, and everything that exists in truth really exists to serve me. Again, how strong that feeling is, is, you know, is different, but that's the general uh, outlook of this soul. And then we have another soul. We have a godly soul. And uh, we have a, a soul of light. And the soul of light, as we discussed last week, isn't only a holy soul, but rather it is a godly soul. And as much as this soul is a derivative and comes from, from Hashem, himself, is a part of God, it's a chelik lekaim emal, a little piece of God from above, and it originates from the divine intelligence. It comes from Hashem's mind, and from the intelligence itself, it originates in the highest and the first of the ten attributes. The attributes of Chachma, which is within the divine intelligence, the most uh, supreme element of the intelligence, the first and foremost of the attributes the place where the attributes connect to the beyond attributic, to those elements of God that are higher than, or to, to Hashem's infinite light. And that's really where the Neshama originates. We discussed last night that the element of Chachma is the place where the Orin Sof resides in. And the Neshama comes from the Chachma, meaning that the Neshama is really rooted, its source is in the infinite light of Hashem. And, um, and that's what we mean, that the neshama is godly, because it comes from Hashem's mind. And that's the origin of all Jewish souls. They are all rooted in the Oren Sof, in the Infinite One Himself. It's only after that that the neshama descends and comes down into the body. Based on the soul origins, all souls stemming from the Infinite, we have to conclude that all the neshamas are equal. All souls are the same. Because this is a place where there are no divisions. There's no separations. It's an indivisible state. So therefore all neshamas come, are all one and the same. Uh, they, are, they are of Hashem, which there is no pieces and parts in godliness. On the other hand, we know, and we learn in many places, that our various and myriads and myriads of levels of neshamas, different kinds of neshamas. There is gradations of souls, levels of souls. There are neshamas, there are souls that are called, uh, that are very, very high, and they are compared, they are called the brain souls of the Jewish people. They are the head of the Jewish people. Like the neshamas of the Avos, of the patriarchs, the neshamas of the matriarchs, the neshamas of Moshe Rabbeinu, and the like. These are very, very, very lofty souls. And then there are other neshamas. To the, and the, finally, we have the souls of the latter generations and the souls of the very, very last generation, which are considered feet souls or heel, or we can say soul souls, souls from the very, very bottom all the way down to the toes and the toenails. So these are the very, very minuscule souls. So we have such a great 
um, difference of neshamas. That is when we're looking at the context of the Jewish people as a whole. When we look at each individual generation on its own, there is the head of the generation, which are neshamas, which are compared, they're called the roish and the mochen, the brain, the head. And then there are the neshamas, which are the latter neshamas, or the neshamas of what he calls the hamonam, the general popular population, and they are neshamas, uh, they're called the feet. So how does this work? How can you have all neshamas originating in the same place, in the same source, so lofty and so godly, and then um, we, we did, there is such a dif difference in neshamas, from the neshamas of the early generations all the way to the neshamas of Moshe Rabbeinu, down to the last and final neshamas, the bottom of the barrel, the neshamas at the end of time. So his explanation is, and we began to discuss this last week, that the difference of neshamas is not in their root. All souls stem from the same place. They're all rooted in the infinite, in the Ein Sof, and there is no uh, di di differentiation. We're all absolutely equal. And these neshamas of the first generations of Avram Avinu and the neshamas of a, a very simple Jew, or we might even call a light-headed person, a person that doesn't take his Yiddishkeit too seriously, these neshamas are absolutely the same in its quintessential origins. It's only, the difference of the neshamas are only in the process of how when the neshama enters into our reality, into our world, on the way down, that's when the changes take place. Um, it's similar as he brings to a child. In the origins where the child emerges from the father, from the father's mind, over there the entire child uh, is one entity, is one being. And there is no, you can't see in the seminal drop, which is the source of the child, we don't, we can't differentiate and find that this is the source of the brain of the child and this is going to be the, 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 the stomach and this is going to be the feet and then this is the part that is going to be the toenails. It's all one. Where does the change take place? That all happens later in the mother's womb. The process of differentiation, of separation, and where we begin to notice differences and the child develops and there are parts of the child that is the brain and then the various other parts and the limbs and the organs of the child. This is all in the later process which is within the mother, not within the father. And that is also the same thing about our souls. In the original origins, all neshamas are from the same place. We all originate in the infinite one, in Hashem's mind. That's why we're all called children to Hashem. We come literally from God's brain. But then after that, um, the neshamas on their, in the mother's womb, which would mean in the process of the neshamas coming down into this world, souls have to descend. Where do they have to descend? What is the equivalent of the mother's womb? The equivalents of the mother's womb, in terms of what he's speaking about over here, are the spiritual worlds through which the neshama has to journey for it to come down into this world. Because according to the uh, Hasidic and uh, Kabbalists, they explain that the existence is multi, multi, multifaceted, multidimensional. There are many levels, many worlds. In general, there are four worlds. There, are, there is the first and primal world, which is called Olam HaAtzilus, the world of emanation. And that is a very, what is that? What does it mean to emanation? It's a world that is utterly godly. It's Hashem Himself. Why is it called the world if it's only God? There's no creatures, there's no inhabitants of that world. Why is it called a world? It's a world because Hashem over there has assumed already a personality. That's the realm of the attributes. Over there is where we can already identify Sephirot various different the attributes. The attribute of Chachma, Hashem's wisdom and, uh, and understanding and Das, knowledge, and then the six emotional attributes. This, and these are, this is what, 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 it, what is it, that defines the world of Atzilus. But there isn't any creature yet. There isn't an entity in being other than God in that, in that domain, on that state of existence. It's, but after Olam Atzilus, comes what we call Olam Abriya, the world of creation. Here is already where the beginning of separation. You have entities and beings that have a, 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 a sense of self other than Hashem. And that means that there's something already existing, or at least in the mind of this creature. In truth, nothing is other than God. But from the mind of this creature, meaning in the perception, the self-perception of this being, is that it exists. However, it's a very, very subtle state of existence. And these are 
souls, the shamis and the like, or angels, the very, very high angels who live in Olam Abriya. Then there is a lower, next world, a, which is the next stage in evolving as the worlds evolve, and that is called Olam Ayatsira, the world of formation, the world of Malachim and the like. Over here already, this, the self-awareness is, it's a thicker world, so the consciousness of the creatures and the beings who live in that world is of a thicker consciousness. So they're more, more, more aware of themselves and less aware of their source, less aware of God. Never, in comparison to our world, it's a world of, 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 um, of uh, amazing brightness. It's, it's full of light. It's just that comp compared to the higher world, it's dark because it's already a diminishment of Hashem's of Hashem's presence, of Hashem's light. And then finally, the last world is our existence, our physical reality. For a neshama to come down into a body, the neshama must pass through all these stages on the way down. Now the question is like this. Some souls, when they descend into this world, descend very quickly through all the realms. They don't linger in any of the worlds. They come immediately down, sort of like an, a, 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 an express train that passes through all the stations and doesn't stop at the stations. Or an express elevator that comes down from the 99th floor all the way down, just one, two, three. There's no stopping. So those souls, as they come down, they retain their consciousness of the world of Atsilas. Those are neshamas of like Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Moshe, and so forth. They were such tzaddikim, they had no identity, no beingness. They were just expressions of the divine. That's what it means when it says that the others, Hainin Hamar Kavan, they are the chariot. A chariot means your entire being, your entire, you have no sense of self because your existence is to serve your rider. That's who they were. They were expressions of Hashem. Their thoughts were not their thoughts. Their feelings were hardly their feelings. These were all expressions of godliness in this world. Why? Because their nishamis did not change when it came down. It remained in its pure atzilustiga consciousness. Other neshamas, when they come down, there is souls that stop in the next world. As they stop in the next world, they get off the elevator and they mingle, the neshama mingles amongst the residents of that world. When it mingles amongst the residents, it picks up on their, on their, um, on their uh, sense on the, on, the, on, the, on the style of existence, it absorbs, it becomes, at least externally, it becomes like a resident of that world. So it's like people who come to live in a certain place. If you're there for a while, you begin to act certain uh, cultural uh, uh, habits, uh, styles, uh, mannerisms, and the like are, become part of you. So if you live in, in, in Los Angeles for quite a while, you become an Angelino. You live in, in New York on the east in the beginning, you know, you're, you're, you're an out-of-towner. But if you're there for a while, two, three years, you become like a resident. You pick up on, on that style. Same as with these neshamas. When they come and they descend into the world of Bria, it's possible that the soul is there for hundreds of years. If in the, and in that sense, it, 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 the conscious, the awareness, the state of mind of that world where people or entities feel themselves already, have a selfhood, is imprinted on the soul. So the neshama loses its purity that it had when it was utterly selfless. And it has already somewhat of a subtle, 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 I don't want to call it ego, but like an ego, a, a somewhat of an I. Then those neshamas can come down, down here. And, which means they are, and those neshamas are called souls of Olam Habriya. Now on the other extreme, there are souls that stop in every world, in every world, meaning in every world they acclimate and they assume the nature of the creatures of that world. Until they come down into Olam and to our physical reality, and they're very, very strongly impacted by the coarseness of this physical world and the concealment of which it covers God. And that's why they operate their, their, their their, their state of awareness is of a very uh, a coarse, which means an interesting thing. It's not, it's a neshama. It's not an animal consciousness. The ego, the animal consciousness comes from klipa. It comes from things that completely conceal and block godliness, that obscure godliness. These are neshamas. So even the lowest neshama 
has a sense of Hashem. That's the difference between, as we spoke about klipa. Klipa means it conceals and blocks God. These neshamas are coming from above the clouds. So souls, even the lowest of neshamas, still have a sense of the fact that God created them and they're here to serve Hashem. However, the manner in which they serve is coarse. Meaning even the spirituality is a coarse form of spirituality. So it's like, um, meaning they feel, they're motivated, they want to do a mitzvah, and they want to be um, observant and serve God and so on and the like, but even that service is, is, has, is coarse. There's an expression in Hebrew called um, gas haruach. Gas haruach generally is interpreted as someone who is um, pompous or arrogant and the like. But the literal translation of the Hasidic explanation of what does gas haruach mean, gas means thick, ruach means spirituality. Which means that the, even the spirituality of this person is coarse, it's thick. And what does that mean? It means that everything the person does has a strong sense, they have a lot of self-awareness in their doing of it. Instead of doing something just because it's the right thing to do, they're very, very much aware that they're doing the right thing. I am giving tzedakah. Oh, I am praying. Oh, I am learning. Oh, look how... And everything, there is a strong sense of self and beingness in everything that they do. And that's what we mean, gas ruach. Gas, and that has to do with the quality of neshama. If the neshama is a soul that has descended into the world of Asiya and been impacted, it didn't just pass through quickly, but it has become, it has entered and assimilated into this reality, it picks up some of that pollutedness of this world to even take the spiritual energy of the neshama and so to speak convolute it so that the soul feels itself. So it's like in its relationship with God and in its love of Hashem, even in the love, meaning even if even if it's not, I'm doing something and I want everybody to notice. That's, that, of course, is a vulgar expression. When you're doing things, and, you, and a mitzvah, a good deed, and you want it to be announced, and everybody should recognize, everybody should see how I'm shuckling during davening, everybody should notice how I give tzedakah, and everybody should notice that I'm a great lamdin and I know how to learn a lot, and so forth. That is very coarse. But even if that, it's not as obvious, or not, and not in that manner, but still, the fact that the person feels themselves very much. And in their love, which they have love, because it's a neshama, it loves Hashem, but in every love, there is two parties. There's the I love you. And as I once heard from Manus Friedman, there's two ways of saying I love you. One way of saying I love you is I love you, which means the you is huge. You feel the other person very much, and the I love is just a little, I mean, who is the one that's loving? I love. And then there's another manner of I love you. It's I love, you. So the you is small and not really, it's not about the other person, it's about yourself and your love and how you're feeling in it. Same as in our relationship with God, is that there is a pure soul where everything that it does, in other words, in the I love you of God, it's Hashem that it feels. It's happy for Hashem, for the mitzvah that Hashem is getting is not so much about the fact that I'm doing it. It's me. Hashem noticed me. And a thicker soul notices itself very much. Later in the Tanya, there is a fascinating statement which always stuck, um, which made a, you know, a big impression on me when I, when I studied Tanya. And that is that he speaks of a soul that finds itself in a dark place. A person that does a chesh ben anefesh, does a, a reckoning of their life, and they fall into a, or they come to a state where they're very bitter and down on themselves because they feel and they see how distant they are from Hashem by analyzing all their thoughts and all their actions even if I'm not sinning even if I'm not explicitly doing things that are outright against Hashem because if a person sins he explains in Tanya in that sense the person is lower even at that moment lower even than, the, than, 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 than any kind of insect because insects never cross the boundary of acting contrary to God's will when a person is doing something against Hashem, then they're very lowly. So when a person realizes, I've sinned, I've done things against God, I've distanced myself, and aside from that, how much of the day am I thinking of Hashem? Or how much do I live in this, in this lie of existence other than God? So doing, a, doing some, taking stock in it brings, can bring a person to a state of, 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 of pain and, and sadness. 
So the Tanya says, sometimes it's important to, to do that when your ego is too, is too inflated, you need to deflate yourself. He recommends doing a reckoning, such a kind of a reckoning. But then he says it's very dangerous because being sad isn't good. So he says, so now you have to counter the sadness. And how do you counter your sadness? You counter, you can control your moods based on what you're thinking. So now you have to go into a contemplation and begin to contemplate how fortunate you are. That despite the fact that you're so lowly, despite the fact that I am so distant and I'm so far and I'm so removed from Hashem, nevertheless, I still do a mitzvah. Nevertheless, I'm still davening. Nevertheless, I can still study Torah. And the beauty of studying Torah is that despite the fact of my loneliness, the moment I'm studying Torah, Torah is godly, Torah is Hashem's wisdom. The moment I'm studying Torah, I am in a, I'm in a moment of, of intimacy with Hashem. Or as he explains, a, 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 a Torah study is, is literally a kiss of God. Because you're saying His words, it's a connection of breath to breath. Or when a Jew is doing a mitzvah, he's locked in a divine embrace. Hashem is embracing the neshama. And that and therefore, he says like this, the lower you are, the lower you find yourself, you have to recognize then the, the greater joy you have in the fact that you can do a mitzvah. Because there's nothing holding a person back from doing a mitzvah. There's no pre-qualifications. A mitzvah is a godly act. A mitzvah picks you up from the dumps and raises you up to the infinite heights instantaneously. So here you have to think about yourself. You know, imagine a princess who was abducted from her beautiful castle and the beautiful palace and was taken into a smelly dungeon and is suffering and languishing in prison. And then she has a moment where she's taken out of that place and she's brought back to her father's, to the palace. And she walks in the beautiful corridors and the beautiful halls. And then she walks and she can be, have lunch, even if it's just a short while. She has lunch and uh, with her parents with the ra and she can experience their radiance and their love. How joyous is she for at least the opportunity for that moment? So the, so the Tanya says later in time that a person should think about, look at the celebration of my neshama. From my animal consciousness, I'm very lowly, but my neshama is having, by the opportunity that I have to do a mitzvah is so awesome and it's so great. So let me celebrate with the joy of my neshama. And that's going to change your mood from being sad into being happy. Right? And again, the more sadder or the, the, the more difficult, the more painful it was, the separation, the greater is the joy of the liberation. Because I came out of such darkness, so the, 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 the freedom, the longer someone has been in captivity, so the greater is the joy when they come out of captivity. But then the Tanya goes and he says something really amazing. He says, but for one moment, when you're very happy that you have a moment to come back into the, into the lap and spill yourself onto the words of the Tanya. You spill, the neshama can fall back in onto God's lap. So when, you, when, you're, when you're celebrating that great elevation, he says, stop for a moment. And the true happiness that you should experience, the true exhilaration that you should experience through this meditation is that how happy must God be that his one and only child came out of captivity and I came back to him. And the Tanya says, don't think about yourself. Don't think about how lovely it is for my neshama that I am coming back to God, but look how happy God is. So forget about your own joy and celebrate in God's joy, and which is infinitely higher than your own. Why? Because that's the neshama. A soul is a selfless being. So even at a moment when you, when you came out of a dungeon, the joy should be the joy of your parents, not the joy of your, of, your, of your own. That is the elegance of the soul. Because the soul is pure, holy, doesn't think of the self. The exact opposite of that is that everything a person does, he thinks everybody must applaud him. And everybody must know. And look how good I am. And I am, and I am, and I am. In the good that you're doing, that's called coarse spirit. Where even the, the, the spirit is coarse. Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz, I saw this story last week. Reb Naftali of Rapshitz, one of the great Hasidic masters, once was saying that he, he's, he's, he's always wondering why the Yet Sahara is called a Melech Zakin Iksil. Why is he called a fool? The Yet Sahara seems to be very, very wise. He manages to get everybody into his trap. So why do we call the Yet Sahara a foolish king? So he says, but last, just recently, I figured out why he's a fool. He says, the other night, I was up in that night and I wanted to study. But in order to study Torah with the full purity, I wanted to go dip in the mikvah. So I went to the 
but there was no, the mikvahs were closed. The only place to go was to the river. The river was frozen. So I took an axe, and I went to chop the ice so I can tie in the mikvah. But of course, the evil inclination, the Yitzhahara appeared, and he says, Naftali, Meshugana, what you are. In the middle of the night, you're going to get sick. You're crazy. It's irresponsible. It's freezing. You'll go in the morning. You wait another hour till the mikvah opens. And so, why you go? And I, I knew where it's coming from, and I totally disregarded it. I broke the ice, and I jumped into the mikvah, and I'm toiling. While I'm in the water, suddenly the thought says to me, Oy, Naftali, you're such a tzaddik. What an unbelievable man you are. You have such strength. You're so great. You disregarded everything and you went to the mikvah in the middle of the night. So I thought to myself, I said, that's why he's a fool. Couldn't he wait until I come out of the mikvah? And then he'll come to me and start creating these thoughts of vanity. He had to jump into the water with me in the middle of the night? Why? Why? So that... That's the foolishness of the Yetzirah. But we see that, yeah, we, we all experience this. We do something good, and instantly we are already feeling like how proud and... and, and. But that's the, has to do not just with the Yetzirah, but that is also out of the thickness of, of the coarseness of spirit which Nishama undergoes by coming down into this world. So these are the various gradations. But the gradations of the soul are not rooted in the essence of the Nishama. It's rooted in the impact that the, that, that the worlds have on the neshama when the neshama is descending down into this world. However, he says, the, the great thing is that the body of a human being is one unit. The entire body is one unit. So all parts and all limbs are connected one to each other. So even the lowest parts of the body are connected to the brain. Therefore, even the lowest neshama even a neshama that has been so processed in its way down till it is just a faint, faint glimmer of what it once was, nevertheless, it means it's still connected to its source because even the toenails are connected to their, to their root. Um, that's why, that's why we, we find that if we have a pain in any part of the body, even if there, you have a pain on your toes, uh, the, you feel it, you feel it in the head. The whole person feels that pain. I wanted to walk for the shear, and I, today I, I, was, I had this uh, ingrown toenail. So I realized how just a little, a little problem on your toe throws you completely off. Like you're, not, you're, not, you're not operating at all like a person. You're limping and you're completely off because of this little pain in the toe. The Jewish people are one unit. And therefore, all souls are interconnected one to each other. So even the lowest neshamas, because they are connected through the other limbs, all the way up to the brain, which are the brain souls, which are the tzaddikim, and the great um, uh, 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 um, the tzaddikim of the, the leaders of the generation, it's through that that they too are connected to their, to their, to their origins in Hashem's mind. Because the child's mind can depart when the child emerges from the father and becomes the child, not the father, the parts of the child that change from the father's brain, again we said, are the other limbs. The brain of the child is very, very similar to the brain of the father. The same is also with the Jewish people. It's the general souls of all of Israel that change as they come down and lose, not lose, but at least their godliness is, is concealed and hidden. But the neshamis of tzaddikim, of those very pure, saintly people, they come down into this world and they remain as a brain, which means they remain in that godly state. So by all Jewish souls being connected to the leader of the generation or the leaders of the generation, it's through that way we retain and maintain a connection to our original beginning, which is Hashem. And this brings us to an amazing understanding into the why Hasidism puts such an emphasis on the Hasid Rebbe relationship. And it was precisely the Balshemto, from the Balshemto and onward, where there was such an emphasis on Hasidim being attached, a dveikos, a connection to a tzaddik. There was always in the Jewish history, there was always teacher and student. But the, the Balshemto introduced a whole new understanding and a, and a manner in which serving Hashem, where the Hasidim are very deeply connected. And what is the idea of this connection? It's more than just teacher. See, a teacher student, you come to the teacher. He inspires you, he teaches, you learn, you have, you're getting information, you're getting inspiration. But the Rebbe Chassid relationship is a relationship that is on a soul level. 
It's not just what you're learning, what you're studying. It's a chassid gives himself, plugs himself in, and he says, I am attached. Now we understand, but the, 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 the inner ramifications of why that is so vital. Because in order for a person to be connected to their inner spirituality, in order for a person to have the full potency of their very own neshama, it's, it requires a connection to a tzaddik. Because the neshama itself of ordinary people has lost its purity, has become coarsened in the process of coming down. And, they're, and, they, and that's why the, even their, their highest spiritual potential is very limited because of the coarseness of the neshama. But when a, when a person is connected to the tzaddik, besides for the fact that the tzaddik delivers email every day to your neshama, awakening your neshama to serve Hashem, to, to, to be inspired, to, to daven, you suddenly can feel, sometimes we have an inspiration, we don't even know where. It's coming from Hashem ultimately, but it's coming through the soul of the tzaddik. And the reason for that is because the neshama of the tzaddik is the brain of the Jewish people. And he really says in Tanya something as amazing. He says, every single Jew must be connected to the neshama of the tzaddik. Because just like the toes, the toes and the feet or any limb of the body must receive its vitality through the brain. It can't go any other way. It's only that people who have a, who recognize the importance of this and choose to have a loving relationship with the tzaddik, so they are plugged in to the inner, to the face of the tzaddik, which means they are receiving from the tzaddik's inner vitality and inner glow and inner energy. People who don't, who don't for whatever reason, don't recognize the tzaddik or don't want to have a relationship or think they can do it on their own or something like that, they too are connecting their soul in, they're also receiving their soul vitality through the soul of the tzaddik, but it's through the back of the tzaddik and not through the front of the tzaddik. It's through the back, meaning it's more of an external kind of an influence, not an outer influence. Every kind of spiritual influence in the world comes through the brain of the Jewish people. And that's why a tzaddik is not called an intermediary. Because a tzaddik, it's not like you're connecting to something other. Why can't you have your own connection to Hashem? It's not an intermediary because it's, it's not, the Jewish people are one unit. We are one entity and one being. And we have to connect to our brain. And through our brain, we have to be interconnected one to each other. And then being connected to our, to our brain. Today, last night, is a great, uh, uh, a very special person who came to town. His name is the Tolner Rebbe. So he's here for a week, and he's speaking in various different places. It's really worth it to go hear him. He's an exceptional uh, speaker and a very, very special person. So I listened to his talk that he gave last night, and he said a very, very beautiful story. He said that by the, by the, um, uh, that the, during the blood libel, the last blood libel that there was, when a Russian Jew by the name of Mendel Bayliss was uh, arrested and was accused for abducting and uh, murdering a Christian child and using the blood for, for the matzah, which is of course something that was in the, in the dark ages, in the middle ages, was a constant libel. But in recent, recent history didn't happen that much. The last one was in Russia. So this Mendel Bayliss, one of the lawyers who was here to defend him, um, was needed, you know, recognized that, they, that the, the accusers were putting all their efforts into condemn, you know, and to prove that the Jewish people have a very lowly regard to Gentiles. So what they were doing was they were rummaging through the Talmud and looking for every kind of statement in the Talmud that can be degrading for, for non-Jews. And then they can say, see, the Jews don't really respect us to the point that that's why they can, that, that, that they can do something so terrible. So one of the things he knew that they were gonna they were gonna use was the Talmud says like this. There is a pasuk that says that um, that uh, uh, that when a person dies, a kohen is not allowed to go into the uh, come into contact with the body, and not allowed to go into a room under the same roof of this dead body. So it says Adam kiyamus, Adam kiyamus, Adam uh, human being that dies. So the Talmud says that it only applies to Jews that die. When a Jewish body is in a, in a, when a corpse, when a person dies and the body is in a building, you're not allowed to go into that room. However, if it's a Gentile that died, um, that, then going into that, into that under the same roof doesn't render a person impure. Why? So the Talmud makes a, a statement like this. Atem kruyim adam, you are called adam 
And the nations of the world are not called Adam. What does Adam mean, man? Seemingly, someone who's looking at this superficially would read it as follows, that, that Jews are human and, and non-Jews are not human, are subhuman, which is, of course, not what the Talmud means. But this is what it says. And there's nothing you can do about it. It says in the Gemara. What are you going to say? You have a passage. It's there. So he was wondering what to do. So he, he uh, knew that there was a very wise and uh, great uh, uh, Rosh Hashiva and a great Tzaddik living in Poland, Remeyer Shapiro, the one who instituted the Dafayomi, uh, the founder of the Aguda, and, uh, or one of the founders. He was a very great man. And so he went to consult with him to ask him what should he do in terms of his response to this question. So he told him, he, gave, he told him what to say. He said like this, the Talmud is saying, Atem Kruyim Adam, Adam is the singular. Ein Kruyim Adam. the nations of the world are not called Adam. Well, if the Talmud would be saying that the, that the nations of the world are not people, then it should have said, Kruyim Anashim. Anashim is plural. Because there are many. So it should say, are not called men or people. It doesn't say that. It says, the nations of the world are not called Adam, Adam meaning one person. So he says the Jewish people are a unique people. In that, when a Jew is hurting anywhere in the world, even in the farthest corner of the world, it hurts all the other Jews. Everybody's concerned. Everybody's worried. Everybody's hurt. Everybody wants to know what's happening. Because we are one. All, we're all interconnected to, to each other. The nations in the world, everybody's for himself. There isn't that connection, that deep brotherhood of oneness amongst them. And that's what the Talmud means. We are called Adam, one person. The Jewish people are one person. And especially if we're looking at it from a mystical perspective, our neshamas are really one soul. And for that reason, it is absolutely vital, first of all, to be all of the Jewish people to be ba'achdos. It's interesting, later in the Tanya, he describes that when Jews are not unified, one with each other, what happens is, which means that, what does that mean? It means that the limbs are disconnected. He says that's like a person that has a blood clot, where the blood cannot travel through the limbs because there's something clogging. A person is so stuffed up with himself that he doesn't connect to his neighbor. So that's called a cloggage of the blood, and that makes the heart ill when there's a, and which there he explains that the Shekhinah is the heart, and the Shekhinah is ill when Jews are not getting along with each other. Because in order for the blood circulation to flow, blood has to go through all the limbs, but the limbs have to be connected and open one to each other. But from here in our parak, what we're learning over here is, is that we have to be connected in a very strong connection to a tzaddik, because the tzaddik is the one that is the brain of the Jewish people, and therefore delivers to all those that are connected to him a certain sensitivity and an awareness and a selflessness in their service. Not necessarily more religiosity, but a purer religiosity. One that isn't about when one doesn't parade around with self-righteousness and the like. One that is you're concerned about another person's mitzvah as much as you're concerned about your own mitzvah. It's more about God being served than you're the one serving Him. That purity is, has to do with a pure neshama, and that tzaddik is the one with the ultimate pure neshama. Then he goes on to say, that is why the sages, by the way, say that there is a pasuk that says, Ladafka, that we're supposed to be, we're supposed to cleave to God. And the Gemara says, how is it possible to cleave to God? How is it possible to cleave to Hashem? Because, so the Gemara says, Had You should cleave to a Talmud Chacham, to a scholar, a Torah scholar, and it's considered as if you are mudbak b'shechina. You are cleaving and you're connected to the Shechina by cleaving to the Tzaddik. Simply, it's okay. You cleave. So, it's a person. You're not cleaving to God. Based on, on this soul interpretation, we understand that. It's not cleaving to a tzaddik and then you're going to experience the tzaddik's godliness. It's your own godliness. This is your own right. This is your own birthright. You're a neshama. You're a piece. You're a chelik alakayim emal. It's only that the neshama, your soul, has become disconnected from its pure state. Our souls are not as pure because of the process that has happened in the way of the neshama coming down. When the neshama cleaves to the tzaddik, 
So then it rises up to the brain of the child, and the brain of the child is connected to the brain of the father. So then we are literally connected to the Shekhinah, connected to, to Hashem, in its purest fashion, through the Tzaddik. Now the question is, if we, once we've established that the Nisham itself are all equal, and then there are various, but then, on the other hand, there are so many different kinds of souls uh, as they are impacted on their way down. The question is, we as parents for our children, do people have any kind of say in what kind of nisham, okay? Who we are, that's already, we're stuck in being who we are in that sense. Whatever nishama was given to us, that's the nisham, okay? But the question now is, if we're going to have children, do we have any influence on deciding what kind of child, what kind of nishama? Obviously, we would like to bring a very pure nishama for our child. Do parents have any effect or any say on the bringing down of a nishama? Now, from the Zohar, it would seem to imply that that is de dependent on parents. And parents could at least uh, tip the, the, the scales in favor that they should draw down a special neshama, a higher neshama. The Zohar says like this, that Rabbi Yosef, one of the great sages, lived in Eretz Yisrael, and he came to Bavel. When he came to Bavel, he saw young men, handsome young men, that were mingling amongst the women and amongst beautiful girls. So he said, and he, and he realized on them that they were very, that they were tzaddikim, they were saintly people, they were great men. So he said to them, he says, aren't you afraid of being in such a challenging environment? Aren't you afraid that this is going to impact you? So they said our parents had holy thoughts when they conceived us. So therefore we're immune. And they brought us down very pure nishamas. And therefore we're immune that we don't have, we don't have any fear that this is going to have any negative effect on us. So this would seem to imply that parents do have an impact on the child's neshama, of what kind of a neshama they will bring to their child. There is a beautiful story of the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe, Rebbe Dov Ber, that uh, one time he traveled to, with his, uh, his, his father-in-law to the city of Yanovich. And um, when he came there, an elderly chassid noticed that, that the, the son of the Rebbe, the Tanya was then the Rebbe alive, and this is the son of the author, and he noticed that the this uh, chassid that the, the myth, that the, that, the, that the future rebbe was very proud of his achievements in his scholarly in his learning and in his and in his meditative prayer. He he guess he was a very subtle, a very refined person. He was able to notice that he he knew that he had achieved a lot because he was in a very very high level. So he figured that he has to do some. He has to do a little polishing. So he went over to him and he said, you know, what's the big deal with you? With everything that you do, you know, you think, you, know, you, you, you daven so, you, you daven in such, with such deep meditation and you're such a scholar. He said, we all know who your father is. Your father. And we can understand that your father has selected what kind of neshama he selected when he went up to the spiritual spheres to draw down a neshama to this world, what kind of a neshama he brought down. And then you grew up in the holy environment of the Rebbe. You were in that state, in that environment of sanctity and Kedusha. Everything negative and unholy was kept away from you. You grew up amongst Hasidim. All you did was study Torah, and you studied esoteric uh, parts of the Torah all day. You're marinating in holiness all your life. So big deal if you daven long. Big deal if you've achieved all of this. You had this great head start way above everybody else. But you don't want to know who I am. You don't want to know who I am. He says, I, my father was a simple person. You can imagine with what kind, what was on my father's mind when he conceived, when he brought my neshama down here. What kind of a dreg of a neshama he brought down from the bottom of the barrel. Then, aside from that, he says, the life that I was, that, that I am, you know what, from what I make, and then I, I grew up and I was raised basically in the same manner like the goat. And then as I, in my, as I was, uh, now he says, you want to know what my, my, my education, or what, no, what, my, what my parnasa, what my livelihood is. I lend money to the peasants during the planting season. 
Then during the winter, I have to go and collect the debt from the uh, peasants. So I have to wake up early in the morning, and I have to make sure to get the money before they spend it all on vodka. So I, have to, so I get up very early in the morning, and way before it's time to daven, because you can't daven yet, and I have to set out to meet the peasants. So when I come to their home, say, first of all, there's no way you're going to get anything with, the, with, with one of these guys unless I come with a bottle. So I have to have a, a bottle with me, and I go and I meet with them. We sit down, and we have a drink or two. After I drink one or two, he says, you have to also drink with the lady of the house, because she can ruin the whole thing. If she's not in it, then forget about it. So I have to sit with her and drink with her as well. And I do this in three or four homes every morning. When I'm done doing this, then I finally get to go to the mikvah. After I go to the mikvah, I begin to prepare for davening. So, and, 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 so that's called davening, because that requires so much. After such a preparation, you can see how challenging my davening is. But you, big deal. The Rebbe was so taken by these words that he came back to his father and he came into an audience and he burst out crying. And he said, all of my Torah and everything I do is worthless, is all meaningless. Later, when this chassid came to the Tanya, uh, came from Yanovich, came to the, um, and he came into Yechidis, the Rebbe thanked him. And he said to him, thank you for making my barren you into a chassid. For, for having, but we see from these stories that it seems like parents do have an effect on the bringing down of which nisham. However, the Tanya over here in the end of this chapter says that's not the case. Parents, um, a nishama is godly. A nishama, the holiness of the soul is so beyond our reach. It's utterly godly, connected to the infinite light, a place that is untouchable and unreachable. More. Not only is the neshama so pure and so holy, but human deeds down here below can't even, doesn't even have an impact on the nature of the neshama, because the soul's nature, as we spoke earlier, higher souls and lower souls, that is, that is impacted or imprinted on the neshama by occurrences that happen to the soul way before it comes down here, elements that happen in the higher spheres, way beyond our reach. We cannot put our fingerprints on a neshama, even and to even a greater degree. Parents can't even have, don't even have an effect on which neshama is given to them, because souls are completely from above, and the decision of which neshama comes to which parent is again completely a godly thing. If so, what does the Zohar mean? That when parents have pure thoughts during the time of conception, they will have a pure child, and parents that are coarser or have, have a negative effect on the child, that is not on the neshama itself. That's only on the garment of the soul. Every neshama has a garment. The garment, of course, is a spiritual entity. Um, we're not talking about the animal soul, we're not talking about the body. The neshama itself has a garment. It needs a garment in order for it to express itself and to uh, channel its, its, its powers and its, uh, its light into the body. It, just like, because the neshama is a private entity. For the neshama to come out onto the altar, just like a person needs a garment in order to go out to people, so too the neshama, in order to come out of itself and to share its wisdom, its knowledge, its feelings, its passions, its emotions, its holy passions, and its holy feelings with the body, it must do that through a garment. That garment is affected by the parents. Parents that have uh, pure thoughts create a pure, more refined garment. What is that garment? That garment is, creates certain character traits, personality traits within the child. And the more refined of a character the, the child possesses, the more of a vessel that garment is to communicate the, the light of the neshama to the body. So he says like this, you can have a very super pure soul from a very, very, very high, high place, which has an immense spiritual capacity, but that soul can be quite crippled if it has a terrible garment because it can't get through to the body. It's like a connection, like when you have a cell phone connection that is very bad, you're in a bad spot. So even if you have a very good phone, but if it's just a bad spot, then it, it causes static. So the static, the neshama, the person doesn't really get a pure, clear message coming from his neshama because of the coarseness of that garment. So it is very, very much incumbent upon parents to make sure 
to provide their children with a pure garment. The great uh, Saraf of Strelisk, one of the great Hasidic Rebbes, said like this. He said, if my father would have one time in his life gone to the mikveh, it would have been so much easier for me, my service of Hashem. One time, if my father would have gone to the mikveh. Or the mother of the Zidachayver Rebbe, who's a great Kabbalist and a very great Hasidic Rebbe. So his, his mother had five children. She woke up all of her children at midnight that they should say the Tikkun Chatzos. She was a great woman. But her son said that I would have had so much less difficulties if my mother would not have eaten the cooked cabbage during the time she was pregnant with me by the non-Jewish neighbor. And that had an impact on my neshama. So again, the more sensitive a, nisham, a, 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 a soul is, the more it can feel the blockages that come from what parents deliver to their children. But again, what parents can affect their children is not on the neshama itself. It's only on that medium through which the neshama communicates with the body. The soul is utterly godly. And therefore he says that there are people that even though the parents are very, very lowly, they are blessed with a very, very, very high neshama. Sometimes the highest, most sublime souls comes down to be a child and makes, enters into the world in a very, to very, very lowly parents. Like he brings from the Arizal, where the Arizal says, like you have Avram Avinu, whose father uh, was was the was the great uh, 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 the, the the one who was uh, manufacturing all the idols. He was a very lowly individual. And you have other 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 uh, stories in, in history where you have high high tzaddikim who didn't come from the most impressive parents. You had first of all great sages who were descendants of Remeyer, was a descendants from. The Roman from the Roman uh, Kaisers, which is definitely not wasn't too spiritually conducive for his neshama. Nevertheless, we do find that very high neshamas come down. The greatest of it all is when we speak about the soul of Mashiach. We look at the, the history of Mashiach's soul. We see something very very strange. That every single time that that the neshama is progressing further and more into the world, it comes. The birth is involved with very very very. It's a very cloudy birth beginning with Lot and his two daughters, and then going on to Yehuda and Tamar, then David and Bathsheba, then Shloma and Naaman, and again and again and again and again, story after story, Rus and Boaz, which at that time was also a little bit, uh, was, 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 not, was, was questionable until they clarified it. And the Arizal says, the reason for that is because the realms, the Klippa has gotten hold of some very, very super neshamas have fallen into the clutches of the unholy. They control this neshama. Of course, they're not really in control. When God tells them that they have to release this neshama into the world, um, they have to obey. But they are very hesitant. And they will argue to God. They will say, we don't want to let this neshama. They're afraid to let a soul go. So in order for, so the only way they do allow this neshama to enter into this world is if they find appearance which are going to, which are lowly and maybe even vulgar, and thereby they're going to create a, a very challenging life because they're going to present a child with a very challenging garment. It's like you have this amazing dancer who is the most graceful dancer in the world but will have to dance dressed in a spacesuit, right, or in a beer uh, costume or the like. So all, a lot of the grace is going to be lost because of the, of the... So what they're going to do is they wait for an opportunity uh, where there is a very coarse environment and they put the neshama in there. Why? Hoping that the soul is not going to be able to get, break, break out from this, from this uh, coarseness, from this difficulty. And then the, on the contrary, when a very, very holy soul, a very lofty and special neshama commits a sin and does acts contrary to God's will, then this neshama becomes the greatest asset to the realm of the unholy because they get nurtured by sin. And the higher the neshama is plugged in, the greater energy this neshama is going to draw down into the forces of the unholy. So to them, it's worth it to take a risk and let the neshama down in this challenging environment. However, and especially when it comes to the soul of Mashiach, they try whatever they can to block it. 
That is why we find that sometimes very, very great neshamas come down in the most unexpected, to the most unexpected of parents. Nevertheless, on the other hand, there's also big tzaddikim that of course brought very holy neshamas down to their children. Because the general rule of course is that when there's a nice setting, Hashem puts a holy neshama in there. That's, that, that's, uh, that's quite possible. And, but as a rule, we don't really have control over neshamas. Neshamas is godly, it's beyond our reach, and we don't ever know what, what kind of neshama we have. Even if we might have challenges and difficulties and have great Sahara, that does not mean that we have a lowly neshama, quite on the contrary. Sometimes the, soul, the, 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 the proof of a very, very powerful soul is one that has such a, a competition, such a strong pull, uh, such difficult challenges. So um, you know, we all should do the best we can, but knowing that you know, whatever neshama Hashem gave us is a neshama that we need and that is important for us, for us to fulfill our mission. So this concludes the second chapter and then we will open up to some questions if anybody wants to ask. Who what? Oh, I said there is, the, there is a uh, neshamas that got stuck that has fallen into the clutches of the klipa, of the unholy. Who they are, there's forces, spiritual forces of darkness. And as a result of the sin of Eitz powerful sparks of holiness, including souls, have fallen into their domain. The snake has gotten, so to speak, these souls. And it holds it in captivity. There's a time when, the nisham, when these neshamas have to come into the world. And they have to leave go of it. But they don't, they're reluctant until Hashem tells them, listen here, um, I'm giving you, you know, because they say, here's what they say. They're arguing, they're saying like this. If, we're gonna, if such a neshama is going to come into this world, this neshama is going to bring so much light to the world, it's going to tip the scales in the favor of goodness. And it's not going to be a fair battle anymore. There always has to be a fair challenge. The holy and the, they're always sort of even, and we have to make choices. There should be bechira. But if there's going to come a tzaddik to the world with such brightness, he's going to make everybody do tshuva, and he's going to pull everybody out of the darkness. And then we're going to be finished before our time. And it's going to be an unfair, it's not going to be a fair fight. So Hashem says, you know what? I'll, you know, you choose, I don't know if you choose, but I'm creating an, a place, an environment where even if it's in a very high nisham, it's going to be very challenging. Who knows how many powerful souls never made it, you know, got stuck because of these garments. We, we never know, I mean, at least not now. Yes? Yeah. And then, and then he's the, and then he's the father, and then he's the brain of the Jewish people. True, but it's interesting that every one of those masters had a master. You know, like Yeshua ben Nun had Moshe Rabbeinu, and Rabbi Akiva had his teachers that he learned by. And then, being that he was meant to be that neshama, that neshama was. But Rabbi Akiva is a perfect example of one of those. Powerful neshamas that was uh, that came down in a in a very challenging setting. Right? Obviously, his parents were probably very simple people, and that's why they didn't educate him and give him a proper education. And for forty years, what? Oh, we, so I mentioned that just now that because if a tzaddik would come into the world with blazing light, he would instantly have such a big effect he would take away the bechira. Um, it's possible, or I'm saying take away completely the Bechira, but it would lessen. Uh, it would be too much of a, of a boost for holiness, and it would tip the, the balance between good and bad in the world in a manner coming from above. See, what Hashem wants is that there should be a balance of good and bad, and we, from below, who are living in the darkness, should increase holiness and make holiness stronger than the unholy. But it's... But from God's perspective, he likes to keep, he must keep from above, he must keep the, 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 the scales even. Then it's the generation, it's the people that are here who increase the goodness. If Hashem sends down a neshama, that's a very, very high neshama, 
and it comes into a holy environment, it's immediately full of light. Like when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, instantly the room was full of light. But then the world needed it. They were in such, there they needed a, a, a very potent boost to the to Kedusha, because Mitzvah Mitzrayim had to happen. But Moshe Rabbeinu came down in a holy environment. You couldn't have a more holier and, 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 and setting. And his neshama came down, and what does it say? That They saw that he's good. Instantly they saw that he's good, because there was nothing blocking the, the light of his neshama. Yeah, he also had that. They also took him, but they, yeah, that's true. Even there too, there was some degree of, 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 um, of a concealment. Yeah. Yes. Where they come? Different places? I don't know. It's only Hashem that decides these things. Good evening and a good week and a good Chaydish again. Take care, everyone.